If you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to um, start. So that's not too hard to find, huh? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the Bible. Let's go ahead and pray again as well. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, Lord, for a sweet time of worship this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to also gather together with our brothers and sisters in the faith and to fellowship and now this opportunity to study the scriptures. God, we pray that you would bless this time. We pray that you would encourage our hearts here today and equip us to contend for the faith and to be better prepared to answer people's objections and questions about the reliability of the Bible. So work to that end, we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may recall when I was with you back in 2016, I did a presentation here on a Sunday morning on the reliability of the Bible. I laid out several lines of evidence for the Bible. We talked about fulfilled prophecies, archaeological discoveries, uh, different ancient historical writings outside of the Bible in the records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that verify different details in the Bible. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on. Well, I was asked to revisit the reliability of the Bible this morning by taking a deeper look at just one of those particular lines of evidence that I only briefly mentioned in that previous presentation, and that is the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. The Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. So what I'd like to do in our time together this morning is look at some passages in the Bible where the biblical writers revealed amazing facts about the earth and the universe thousands of years before the invention of telescopes and microscopes and satellites and deep diving submarines and all the other technology that finally allowed scientists in the last century or two to verify that what the biblical writers said thousands of years ago was actually correct. So we believe that this is compelling evidence the biblical writers had encounters with God wherein he not only revealed himself to them, but also revealed insights about creation that were not known at the time. So we'll look at some of these revelations this morning. My hope and prayer is that it will encourage you in your faith, but that it will also help equip you with some interesting details and talking points that you can bring up in future conversations with your skeptical coworkers or friends that you're trying to talk to about Jesus. So let's start by considering what the Bible said about the start of the universe. Notice with me, if you would, there in your Bibles, the very first verse of the Bible. Moses wrote this, in the what? Beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible makes it very clear here, right out the gate in the very first verse, that the universe had a beginning. Well, this went against the prevailing view in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. Most of the ancient world, including the Egyptians at the time of Moses, believed that the universe was eternal, 
uncreated, just there. Now, this is not to suggest that the ancients didn't believe in gods. They believed in dozens of different deities, but they believed their deities moved around, operated inside a a, a universe that had just already been in existence from throughout eternity. And up until the 20th century, the widely accepted view in scientific circles is that the ancients were right about the universe. The universe is just there like it's always been. It did not have a beginning, they assured us. Well, that view has fallen on hard times. Scientific evidence discovered in the 20th century demolished this view. The cosmic background radiation echo, the second law of thermodynamics, and the motion of the galaxies have led astronomers now to conclude that the universe actually had a beginning. Just like the Bible said 3,500 years ago when Moses penned the words found here in Genesis chapter 1. Arnold Penzias, an astrophysicist who was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering some of the evidence that the universe had a beginning, agrees that the scientific data lines right up with the Bible. In an interview in the New York Times, Penzias said this, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. End quote. So, score one for the Bible right there in the very first verse. If you're taking notes, that was number one, the start of the universe. Let's consider another section of scripture that speaks about number two, the stretching out of the universe. The stretching out of the universe. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, if you would. Isaiah, chapter 40. There on the screen for you is an artist's depiction of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, up until the 20th century, scientists believed that the Milky Way galaxy was the entire universe. They had no idea that there were other galaxies outside of the Milky Way, and they certainly did not know that the universe was expanding or stretching out. Well, that all changed in the 1920s when an American astronomer named Edwin Hubble discovered other galaxies outside of the Milky Way and that the universe itself was expanding. Using the most advanced telescope on the planet at the time, located at the Mount Wilson Observatory, out in Los Angeles, Edwin Hubble discovered not only distant galaxies, but that these galaxies were moving further and further apart from one another, that the universe was literally expanding or stretching out. It was an incredible discovery, and it revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos. But, you know, the Bible actually mentioned this long before Edwin Hubble was even born long before the first telescope was even invented. There in your Bibles, notice Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. At the end of that verse, 
written about 700 BC, so about 2,700 years ago, Isaiah speaks of God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. For those of you who have gone tent camping, you know what it's like when you pull up to your campsite, you pull your tent out of the trunk and you flop it down there on the ground. And then what's the next step? You have to begin stretching it out, right? And then you put the poles in and that's when, that's when dad gets mad and frustrated. Uh, <laughs> at least that's what happens in the Campbell family. But um, I, Isaiah uses that analogy, the stretching out of a tent to describe what God is doing with the universe, that he has set it in motion to be stretching out. The book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, mentions this as well. It says there that God stretches out the heavens. These verses indicate that the universe has expanded since the time of its initial creation in Genesis chapter 1. Now, friends, Isaiah wrote that about 2,700 years ago. The book of Job, about 4,000 years ago. Question for you. How in the world could Isaiah and Job have known that the universe was expanding? There were no telescopes back then. No satellites. Galileo was the first person to point a telescope to the heavens, and that didn't happen until 16. 08, and when one looks up at the heavens from here on the earth, the universe doesn't appear to the naked eye to be expanding. So it's not like they could have just, you know, figured it out eventually, you know, looking up. You can't tell here from earth with your eyes that the universe is expanding. And yet Isaiah and the book of Job declared that God stretches out the heavens. Amazing. Now, the skeptic says, hold on here a second, Charlie. I mean, these kinds of details were probably just inserted into the Bible after the discoveries were made, you know, to make the Bible appear as though it had these great insights. Some critics of Christianity have proposed that to me as a solution to these kinds of statements in the Bible. Well, in response to that objection, we know that these kinds of verses weren't inserted into the Bible sometime after the discovery because we have ancient manuscript copies of the Bible that have all the verses that we're looking at today in them. In fact, right there on the screen for you is a photograph of an ancient scroll of the book of Isaiah. It was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls unearthed about 70 years ago. In Israel, this scroll on the screen is approximately 2,100 years old. And guess what? It's opened on the screen to Isaiah chapter 40. Where are we at in our Bibles right now? Isaiah chapter 40. And verse 22, right there in the ancient Hebrew text, says the exact same thing that our Bibles say today. That God stretches out the heavens proving that nothing was inserted into the Bible after the 20th century discovery. And hundreds of other ancient biblical manuscripts are able to confirm the exact same thing when it comes to every one of these examples we'll be looking at here this morning. 
Now, while we're still on the topic of the cosmos, there's a third area that biblical writers beat modern sciences to the truth. If you're a note taker, number three, this one has to do with the stars. The stars, before the invention of the telescope, people believed the stars could all be numbered. They were so confident of this, they drew up star charts like this one and then made long lists with all of the stars named and numbered. The Greek astronomer and mathematician by the name of Hipparchus, who lived about a century before Jesus' birth, claimed that there were 1,026 stars. 200 years later, the astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy brought the count up by 30. 1,056 stars, he said. Now, that was the prevailing view for the next 1,300 years until the time of the German astronomer Johannes Kepler, who brought the count down to 1,005 stars. Well, as you know, all of these counts got thrown out the window when the telescope was invented. When Galileo, a devout Christian, pointed his telescope to the heavens in 1608, he discovered these previous counts were way off and that the Bible was actually right. What did the Bible say regarding the matter? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22... God declared that the host of heaven, a way of referring to the stars, cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. God says here that the stars cannot be counted. And in fact, trying to do so would be about as futile as trying to count the grains of sand floating around in the sea. Obviously, an impossible tax. Now, Jeremiah wrote that more than 2,000 years before Galileo made his discovery. Today, with the help of powerful telescopes, astronomers estimate that the universe contains approximately two trillion, not stars, just galaxies. Containing, NASA says, anywhere between 100 billion and 10 trillion stars each. Far too many stars for us to ever count. Jeremiah declared that to be the case because the God who created the stars revealed that to him. Incredible. What else do the biblical writers get right? Well, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Number four, facts about the sun. Facts about the sun. In ancient Egypt, the sun was worshipped as a deity named Re, commonly mispronounced as Ra, whom the people thought majestically sailed across the sky every day in his fiery boat on his daily visits to what they called the upper and lower worlds. Evidence of sun worship has now been found all over the ancient world. The ancient Babylonians, Assyrians, uh, Central and South Americans all bowed down to and worshiped the sun. Well, you may recall that Moses was born and raised in ancient sun-worshipping Egypt. Even educated, the Bible says, in their schools. 
But after an encounter with the true and living God, Moses went against the prevailing view of the day and declared in the opening chapter of Genesis that the Son wasn't a God, but just a creation of God made to provide earth with light and to help measure the passing of time. Now, that claim surely would have resulted in a death sentence in ancient Egypt, but of course Moses was already out of Egypt when God revealed this to him. But of course Moses was right, wasn't he? And when the telescope was finally invented thousands of years later, astronomers were finally able to prove to people that the sun is not a deity flying across the sky every day, but just an enormous star millions of miles away from the earth. But check this out. 400 years after Moses died, David wrote these words about the sun in Psalm chapter 19, verse 6. He said, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. Now, David wrote that about 3,000 years ago. Well, for years, modern critics of the Bible laughed at this verse, thinking that David made an enormous error. They thought he was describing what was known as a geocentric view of the cosmos. They thought, misreading what David said, that David said the sun was on a circuit around the earth, which we know isn't the case. Well, if you carefully reread the verse, David doesn't even mention the earth. He just says the sun is on a circuit through the heavens. But they laughed at this and they said, well, you know, this is ridiculous what David said. We know the sun doesn't go anywhere. It's stationary. It's really just the earth that moves around the sun. But with the advent of powerful telescopes, we've discovered that the sun actually does move. In fact, it's traveling about 515,000 miles an hour on a circuit through the heavens as it makes its way around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, all in perfect harmony with what David said here in Psalm 19, verse 6, when he described the sun as being on a circuit through the heavens. Not only did the biblical writers speak correctly about the universe, the stars, the sun, they spoke with amazing accuracy and foresight about our planet's planet earth and this brings us to a fifth point i'd like to briefly discuss and that is the shape of the earth the shape of the earth the ancient egyptians and babylonians are on the historical record for having believed that the earth was flat for a long time people in the ancient world did believe that the earth was flat shaped like a disc surrounded by a large river of water that they called Oceanus. And it was believed that anyone foolish enough to sail through the pillars of Hercules, now known as the Straits of Gibraltar, would fall off the earth into nothingness. That sounds pretty terrifying. That would put a dent in exploration, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, some critics of the Bible today say that the Bible agreed with these ancient, outdated, flat earth views. Critics of the scriptures like to point to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where John speaks of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth.
earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Critics claim that this verse espouses a flat, four-cornered earth. Well, they are quite mistaken about the matter. The critics overlooked the fact that John was simply using a figure of speech to describe the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And we still use this same figure of speech today, 2,000 years later, even though we know with certainty that the earth is round. Centuries before John wrote the book of Revelation, the Bible had already indicated that the earth was round, and it's reasonable to think John would have been familiar with these passages. For example, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 22, we're told that God sits above the circle of the earth. From space, the earth has a circular shape to it, doesn't it? How did Isaiah know that? He lived during a period when Persian astronomers were convinced the earth was flat, and he lived also centuries before the Greeks figured out that the earth was round. So how did Isaiah know that? Well, maybe he read the book of Job, more than a thousand years before Isaiah declared those words on the screen, the book of Job told us that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's pretty fascinating. Let me break it down for you what Job has just described. Job says that God has drawn a circle. Where? On the surface of the waters. That's a reference to the oceans. At the boundary of light and darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where evening and morning occur. But notice that the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. That's just incredible accuracy and foresight right there for someone writing so long ago. All right, how about number six, the suspension of the earth? The suspension of the earth. Ancient Hindus believed that the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. Something has to hold the earth up, people reasoned long ago. Well, what did the Bible say? Well, again, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job said that God stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Nothing. In other words, the earth hangs completely unattached in space. Well, of course, we now have pictures of the earth taken from the International Space Station or voyages to the moon and such, and we know that this is indeed the case. But how did Job know this 4,000 years ago? Before the invention of rockets and telescopes and satellites? His declaration there is astounding. All right, let's consider a few more. How about number seven, the source of water? The source of water, several thousand years ago, the ancients observed enormous rivers like this one on the screen flowing out into the ocean, but they could not figure out why the oceans never overflowed or why the sea level never rose. The source of rainwater was a complete mystery to them. 
Well, it wasn't until Leonardo da Vinci and European scientists Pierre Perrault and Edmund Marriott in the 17th century that the Earth's water cycle finally began to be understood in an accurate and detailed way. The observations of these scientists eventually led to the understanding that rain clouds develop from evaporation of ocean water, followed by what's called atmospheric transportation and Um, precipitation or rain. So scientists finally began to figure these things out three, four, five hundred years ago. But had they read the Bible, they might have figured it out much sooner. Nearly 3,000 years before the hydrological cycle was discovered, Solomon penned these words in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 7. He said, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, the sea, there they flow again. Now, this is astonishing. Solomon understood that the sea down here is the source of the water up here flowing into the sea. Everyone had it upside down. At the time, and they thought, well, no, no, this feeds that. He says, no, this down here feeds that. Look at the verse again. He states that the sea is the place from which the rivers flow. The sea is the source of that water. And he says, there they flow again. Other places this was hinted at include Job chapter 36. Verse 27 and 28 says there that God draws up drops of water. He seems to be describing what we call evaporation today, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. And then one other place, the prophet Amos pointed this out about 2,700 years ago in Amos 9, verse 6, he says that God calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, Yahweh. Remarkable. How did Amos, Job, and Solomon know that the source of rainwater is oceanic evaporation? When we reflect upon the fact that scientists didn't discover this to be the case until 3,000 years later, these Biblical passages are truly incredible. All right, while we're talking about water, let's discuss another revelation the Bible made long before it was discovered to be true. This one has to do with number eight, springs in the ocean. Springs in the ocean. As you probably learned in high school, 70% of the earth's surface is covered with ocean water that is incredibly deep. Nearly seven miles deep, we've discovered in some places. Much of the ocean floor away from the shoreline lies in total darkness. Three tons per square inch pressure. Can you imagine that? Three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor makes exploring most of the ocean floor an impossible task today apart from modern research submarines. So in light of that, I think it's reasonable to assume that none of the biblical writers ever explored the bottom of the ocean. Safe assumption? I think so. 
And yet, some 4,000 years ago, the book of Job said that there are underwater springs on the floor of the ocean. God revealed this to Job in Job chapter 38, verse 16, when he asked Job a series of questions. And one of the questions God asked him was this, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? In other words, Job, have you ever explored the bottom of the ocean and seen the canyons I put there? Have you seen the springs of water down there that unleash water into the ocean? Now, the obvious answer to the questions God asked Job in chapter 38 was no. God was helping Job to realize that he really didn't have a very broad understanding of what really was going on in the world. We can think we've got everything figured out and get upset with what God's allowing it to happen. But our our view of reality is so limited. And that's what God's doing here with Job. He's asking him a series of questions that would help him realize that his understanding of what's going on on the planet was very limited. And that we need to trust the maker, the creator, and not our understanding of things. So the obvious answer to this question for Job was, was no. The technology wasn't around. They didn't have aqua lungs back then, let alone uh, submarines or I don't even think they had mass and snorkels back in Job's day. Well, the book of Genesis spoke about this as well. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, when Moses describes what brought on the flood, he says that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So the flood wasn't just the result of 40 days of rain falling. Genesis 7 verse 11 says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth and that unleashed a lot more water onto the planet. Now people back in Job's day or Moses's day had they carefully considered what they wrote or said here probably wondered what in the world do those guys think they're doing? I mean how what what, what are they saying? They've never been to the bottom of the ocean. What are are they talking about? They're crazy. But now now more than 3,000 years after Moses and Job spoke of these deep sea fountains, we finally have discovered that they were right all along. With the help of a deep diving research submarine built to withstand the three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor, deep sea springs and fountains were finally observed for the first time at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in 1973. Here on the screen you can see a photograph of some of these springs at the bottom of the ocean. The underwater springs spew out boiling hot up to 750 degree mineral-laden water from what scientists call chimneys that are up to 15 feet tall atop mounds of minerals up to 60 feet high. Isn't that just fascinating? Fountains and springs at the bottom of the ocean, just like Moses indicated all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a ninth and final example of the Bible's amazing accuracy and foresight. This one has to do with sea paths. Sea path. Turn with me, if you would, one last time to Psalm chapter 8 in your Bibles. 
Psalm chapter 8. A common question I get after this teaching is whether or not these are the only nine examples in the Bible. And the answer is no. Um, There's probably about three dozen of these kinds of statements in the Bible. Obviously, it would be unwise to do a 36-point sermon on a Sunday morning. So (laughs) we're limiting it to nine here this morning. But this is a fun one. Uh, see pass number nine. Now, notice this, Psalm chapter eight. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, let's pick it up in verse three. David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him or care for him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How excellent indeed. Beautiful words there. But I want to draw your attention back to verse 8. David says that the fish of the sea pass through the paths of the seas. That's interesting. David indicates here in the Bible that the seawater has paths. A path is a course or route where something travels. So, David says here that the sea has paths. It has courses that the ocean water follows. Now, had people carefully considered David's words 3,000 years ago, they might have wondered what in the world he was talking about. Why is that? Well, in ancient times, very little was known about the seas and the oceans. The only seas the ancient Hebrews knew of, apparently, were the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are really just large inland lakes. But none of these bodies of waters possess significant observable currents. And so for about 2,800 years, David's words about the seawater having paths or routes went untested and unverified, at least in any way that historians are familiar with. Well, that all changed in the 19th century with a man by the name of Matthew Mari. Matthew Mari was an astronomer, geologist, meteorologist, and the head of the United States Navy's Department of Charts, Maps, and Instruments. He was very bright, and he was also a Christian. Well, one day, while lying in bed with what he thought was a terminal illness, he asked his daughter if she would get out the family Bible and read to him. And so she obliged and picked up the Bible and opened up to this psalm, where we're at right now, Psalm chapter 8. When she read that phrase, paths of the seas in verse 8, the words there struck this navy man. Matthew Mari said to his daughter, if God says the paths of the sea, they are there. And if I ever get out of this bed, I will find them. 
Well, Matthew Mari did recover from that illness, and finding those paths in the seas is the very thing he set out to do. After years of extensive research, which included deep sea soundings, tracking thousands of bottles that he released into the ocean, and an examination of thousands of dusty old ship logs, sailing records, Mari discovered that the ocean water followed certain predictable paths. Two of the better paths or currents are the Gulf Stream on the East Coast and the California Current on the West Coast. For example, the water in the Gulf of Mexico flows around the tip of Florida, then does a U-turn and follows a path 40 miles wide and 2,000 feet deep flowing all the way up the east coast, then heads east across the Atlantic Ocean over to the western shores of Europe. The California Current, as it's called, brings cold water south from Alaska down along the California coast. This is one of the reasons we have Uh, such great weather in Southern California. As far as recorded history goes, a hurricane has never made landfall on California uh, or in the state of California because when those hurricanes start brewing off the coast of Mexico and they're headed dead north straight towards San Diego where I live, they they dissipate every time because they hit the cold water current that's come down from Alaska and the storms vanish. You need warm water to continue Uh, generating energy. So Matthew Murray published a book on his remarkable discovery in 1855 and encouraged sailors around the world to start using these kinds of paths in the sea to increase efficiency and decrease the number of sailing accidents. So his discovery of the ocean's currents revolutionized the shipping industry for as you can imagine it's far more efficient to sail with a current than to go against one or across one. So his recommendations began cutting sailing times by weeks, even months for some voyages, and began saving companies millions of dollars in shipping expenses all over the world. Well, today in Matthew Murray's home state of Virginia, there's a large statue of him, a monument built in his honor with this inscription in the plaque. Matthew Fontaine Murray, pathfinder of the seas, the genius who first snatched from ocean and atmosphere the secret of their laws. Every mariner for countless ages as he takes his chart to shape his course across the seas will think of thee. His inspiration, the plaque says, holy writ, holy scripture, Psalm 8, verse 8, and a couple of other verses there that inspired his ongoing Research. Matthew Murray is known today as the father of oceanography. What an incredible discovery this man made. But what I find even more incredible is that 2,800 years before Murray made his discovery, David, with the help of the Holy Spirit, revealed to us that there were paths in the seas. Friends, these kinds of declarations in the scripture are compelling evidence that the men who penned the different books of the Bible were being guided by God as they pinned down its words. And this is precisely what the Bible indicates about itself. For example, in verses like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says there that men of God spoke as they took wild guesses about things. No as they were moved 
by the Holy Spirit. And because that is the case, you can read the Bible today with the highest degree of confidence. And I hope that you will. But friend, if you're a visitor here today or new to reading the Bible, I feel it important to point out to you that this book is not primarily about the stars, the solar system, or the shape of the earth. The biblical writer spoke a bit about these things in passing. The primary message in this book is about mankind's Savior, Jesus. For, you see, humans have been separated from a relationship with God because of our sins. Without a remedy to that situation, the Bible assures us that we would all face the righteous judgment of a holy God for our sins and end up in hell. Thankfully, though, that doesn't have to happen. Because this same God who is holy and just and who hates sin is also loving and merciful. He loves you. So much so, the Bible says that he poured out the judgment you deserved for your sins on himself. How awesome is that? That's what was happening when Jesus was nailed to that cruel wooden Roman cross. He was receiving the punishment you deserved for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could escape eternity in hell and be reconciled back into a right relationship with your maker. Three days later, of course, he rose from the grave and now he's offering all of humanity the free gift of everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God. What a gracious offer God has made us. How might you receive that gift? How might you be saved? Well, I'll let God answer that question. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, he says, turn to me and be saved. That's pretty simple. He doesn't say get your life right, go through 12 steps, or whatever. You know, no, he just says, you turn to me. And then he makes sure that everyone knows they're invited. He says, all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. So God just wants you to turn to him, to place your faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for your sins. And you can do that today. God's a prayer away. You can call out to him right now and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off if you need to get right with God. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, I encourage you to continue in the faith. Continue in the faith, picking up and meditating on the words in this book often, fully confident that they are trustworthy from cover to cover. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, we covered a lot here. Um, quickly want to highlight a couple resources uh, at my resource table over here. To your left, we do have pre-recorded DVDs of that presentation. If you'd like to share it with a friend, I go through 10 
uh, different discoveries on the DVD. If you stop by the table, you'll, you'll see that we have 34 different DVDs on a wide range of topics related to the defense of the faith. Um, we've been able to put all of those onto a USB flash drive, if that might interest you. Things the size of a AA battery, you can stick it right into a USB port on your television. Pull up any of our videos anytime you like there. Or you can stick it into a computer USB port and watch the videos there. Or even transfer the videos uh, through your computer onto your iPad, iPhone, Samsung tablet, whatever you use nowadays to watch videos. So that might interest some of you. And then one last resource I'll highlight is this book. It's called One Minute Answers to Skeptics. Several of you have purchased a copy of that. I wrote the book in 2005. Last year, I felt that the book needed to be updated to address what I think are more current objections and questions that atheists are asking today. So I rewrote the entire book from the ground up. It deals with dozens of new uh, challenging objections to the gospel. Um, the objections like some of those on the screen, you know, the Bible endorses slavery and promotes hatred of women and homosexuals and men wrote the Bible so you can't trust it. You know, all of those kinds of objections, they're not true. But were you ready to at least offer a concise response? A lot of Christians aren't. And so um, I think that book would be helpful for some of you as well. So thought I'd highlight those. Let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll dismiss you. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word. And God, we're thankful for these amazing declarations in the Bible that have now been verified thousands of years later by scientific discoveries. What a great reminder that is to us that the men who penned the Bible were being guided by you. And so God, we're thankful for that. We worship you today. We love you. We're so glad to know you. And God, we do pray you'd give us a renewed thirst to read the Bible and to walk in its light and to make you known in this generation amongst those who need to hear the gospel, use us to that end, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for letting me share with you today.